0: All over Homer, that old, reliable perennial rhubarb is popping up, one of the first plants you can use in the spring. So let's talk about it. My name's Jeff Lockwood. My guest for this show is Terry Roble, and it's time to check the pantry. Everybody knows one thing about rhubarb. Don't eat the leaves. The leaves are poisonous. The stems are fine to eat, but the leaves will kill you. The amount of leaves it takes to kill you is never specified, but we all know that the leaves are deadly. Sometimes our knowledge is a little more specific. We assert, for instance, that rhubarb contains extraordinarily high amounts of oxalic acid, which is certainly deadly in large doses. We may be aware that this connection between rhubarb leaves and death was drawn by the British during World War I food rationing, where people were supposedly advised that eating the leaves of the common plant was safe, resulting in numerous deaths. The World War I story, no matter where you find it, seems to trace back to one article in the Journal of the American Medical Association from 1919. A doctor in Montana reported a case in which a pregnant woman fell ill suffered a miscarriage, and subsequently died. She was reported to have eaten rhubarb stems and leaves the night before. Her husband, who had eaten fewer leaves than she had, reported feeling weak and dizzy, but was otherwise fine. The editors of the journal agreed with the doctor that rhubarb leaves were likely to blame, based on reports that numerous people in Britain had attributed sickness to eating rhubarb leaves, and that several had died. As far as I can tell, this article is the source from which the rest of our modern knowledge about rhubarb leaves flows. The usual suspect, and the one theorized by the Montana doctor, is oxalic acid poisoning. Now, oxalic acid is certainly poisonous in sufficient doses. The typical reported lethal dose is 15 to 30 grams, although there has been at least one death attributed to oxalic acid poisoning, at a dose of only 5 grams in an unhealthy older male. And it is true that rhubarb leaves are on the higher end of vegetables ranked by oxalic acid content, generally given as about a half a gram per kilogram, almost exactly the same as cocoa. That's just ahead of collard greens, with around 410 milligrams per kilogram, and a little behind beet greens and chard, which have between six and 700 milligrams per kilogram. Spinach is nearly one gram per kilo, and parsley comes in at 1.7. Dosage is everything when it comes to poisoning, of course. Everything becomes poisonous in sufficient quantity. It's striking, though, that there are quite a few commonly consumed vegetables that exceed the rhubarb leaf in the quantity of this deadly poison they contain. Are we toying with fate to order a spinach salad at a steakhouse? Does a side dish of colorful chard endanger us? Is that sprinkle of parsley on top of our eggs benedict a brunch time game of a Russian roulette? While there are reports of illness and death after consuming rhubarb leaves, there doesn't seem to be consensus anywhere but in the popular literature that oxalic acid is the culprit, and many of these articles seem to derive ultimately from the 1919 Montana case. There is another category of toxins called anthraquinone glycosides, some of which are present in rhubarb leaves. These are hypothesized in some modern research to be involved in reported cases, but there appears to be nothing even close to agreement as to what the mechanism for toxicity is. Now, to be clear, it is not the position of Check the Pantry that rhubarb leaves are safe to consume. I've never eaten them, and I don't intend to start. They've been associated with illness for at least 100 years, with some indication before that that they were not a safe food. Rhubarb's original use was medicinal, and many pre-scientific medicines worked by purging, usually through laxatives. The purpose of this small and not very comprehensive peek into the question of rhubarb toxicity is not to come to any particular conclusion about the advisability of eating rhubarb leaves. All of the sources you should listen to on matters of food safety advise against it. Rather, it's to note that, once again, a truth which a couple of weeks ago I held to be self-evident has, upon a little investigation, turned out to be much less certain than I'd assumed. Incidentally, the author of that line about self-evident truths, Thomas Jefferson, was one of the early New World adopters of rhubarb. In his notes on one of his plantings, he writes, quote, "...the leaves excellent as spinach." Although, I hasten to add, Thomas Jefferson... Is a very poor guide for behavior. And they used to call it pie plant back in the 19th century. They that did. was that was what rhubarb was for years and years and years. Yeah. Pie plant. Yeah. Hi, Terry.
1: Hi, Jeff. Good morning.
0: My guest today to talk about rhubarb is Terry Roble. And we were both talking today about how we both have very close to us, me and my yard, her and her neighbor's yard, some rhubarb beginning to sprout up that we can sort of use you did something with it yesterday well i
1: took my bike down and my bag and my dog and we plucked it and threw the leaves over the hill (laughs) and my dog wouldn't eat them he eats everything so okay there must maybe there's something with that and i brought them home and i I was going to make a uh, rhubarb blueberry muffin and then i was going to make the rhubarb um chutney that i like on um meat and melted brie and stuff so, But that never happened because I, I got tired and ran out of gas last night.
0: Well, that happens. Yeah. So I assume you've, you've made a rhubarb pie or two in your, in your day. Oh my gosh, well, I let's, love them. Well, let's get, a, let's get the pie out of the way okay. because we have much more interesting things to talk about for the rest of the hour than rhubarb pie. But please tell me about how you make your rhubarb pie.
1: Well, it, I like my rhubarb pie with a little strawberries mixed in, but the husband is a purist and so he just likes plain rhubarb. And my mom likes it with some eggs in it, as in a rhubarb custard pie.
0: Eggs. Yeah. How do you How do you make it? If you You make it with eggs, um,
1: basically add a little egg, a couple eggs, and some flour, and it makes a little custardy, lovely layer in there
0: so do you cook your your rhubarb before you no. put it in the pie you, it all goes nope. in raw it just
1: all goes in raw sugar flour cinnamon eggs
0: do you let your rhubarb like macerate in the sugar for a while a little, or do you, just, you want you just dump it right you in and dump let it go it
1: in. i mean uh, you know yeah. and is
0: it like is it like apple pie where you need to like heap it up a bunch no. what's the consistency at the end
1: um it's it's just a little thicker than the, the pie and just think of maybe some thin custard in there like an egg custard
0: you always make it with the egg custard? No. No.
1: Mm-mm. No, I just make it plain. Usually, that's how we like it. All right, gotcha. Yeah, and I put a little lattice pastry crust down the top. Oh, nice.
0: Yeah. Well, do you just use a regular butter crust, or do you have like a I, special? I, I do
1: a half and half. That's my preference these days: half shortening and half butter. In oh, my I crust. gotcha. Mm-hmm. So
0: you get flakiness, but also yeah, buttery deliciousness. Yeah. Nice.
1: Nice. What do you do?
0: I'm too lazy to make pie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a. It def- I, I remember when I first got married and started making pies and there was a lot of pie crusts that hit the, hit the wall yeah i'd get mad at them and they wouldn't work and i'd just take them throw them
0: i know it's weird that i say that because like i, I don't really think anything of making like a pastry cream which kind of has more steps and stuff <laughs> than a pie but somehow like in the end it's just easier to deal with pudding i just hate shaping pie crust i'm really bad at it i love it you know it. And it's just i'm terrible i just can't make it happen and every time i do one i'm like this is the ugliest thing i've ever seen <gasps>
1: Rustic good go tart
0: which is well that's that's that, I, I like making making tarts because tarts are easy because the pan does all the work you there know you, you just push press the you just press the crust right in the pan and it looks pretty it's got the little ridges and stuff but <laughs> you know I can't I can't even tell you the number of pie crusts that I've tried to make and you know I'll try to put like a fancy border on the end and it just it just always looks like garbage you know and I'm just <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: your talents lie in other areas of baking
0: okay it, It's true it's definitely not in making pies look nice
1: that's okay. And you know, a lot of people just, they're abhorred when I tell them I still make pie crust. They're like, you don't go buy it already made in the store. I'm like, no.
0: You know, the, the making, it's no problem. You know, like uh-huh. I, I have multiple ways that I can make it. And I'm always like, wow, this is really great pie crust. And then I try to shape it into something and it just looks like a bunch of trash, you know? <laughs> okay.
1: Well then w- w- what do you like to make? <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> obviously.
0: <laughs> I need, Obviously somebody needs to have a show where they tell you how to, you know, work with pie dough where it doesn't look like garbage, but <laughs> That's why I usually sure, yeah. I usually wind up. I, it's not that it's not going to be this show. Let me tell you that.
1: <laughs> we'll move on to that some other time. I'll be your guest again. I do like
0: I do like crumbles though, which oh, are yeah. usually because I'm lazy and can't be bothered to make a pie they're crust. They're so like, good though. Yeah, that or like a cobbler. I do like cobblers too. Mm-hmm. Um, even though they're not, they're, people tend to make a lot of crisps and crumbles with rhubarb, but they don't tend to make very many cobblers. It doesn't seem.
1: No, no.
0: I don't. Maybe it's because rhubarb is kind of a northern vegetable. Because I never really had it when I was in this. You know, I grew up in the south, and it wasn't a common thing.
1: Yep, I was going to bring that up. I I made a rhubarb dessert one time for a family member who was born and raised down in South Carolina, and he'd never had rhubarb. He yeah. thought it was the best thing he ever had.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. It, it was crazy. I'm not sure when the first time I ever really had it was, and I because I'm pretty I'm sure I'm pretty sure it grows down there. You know, but there's so much else that does, that that grows. Like, I mean, that's that's why it's Black so popular. Berries, peaches. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you got blackberries and peaches. Like, you're not going <laughs> right. to fool around with rhubarb. No. You know, and whereas up here, like anywhere north of, you know, probably Pennsylvania or something, it's it's the first thing that comes up. It
1: is, and I'm so excited to get it and do something different. You know, the the rhubarb and the chives. No, not together. But those are my first two things I can see green in the garden.
0: Oh, you get chives. I
1: have chives. Yeah. Oh
0: man. I love them. I'm crossing my fingers that my mint comes up soon, but it it hasn't happened yet.
1: (laughs) Yeah, later on.
0: Rhubarb's acidity makes it a natural as a uh, tart component in a dessert. And I'm a big fan of cheesecake, and I wanted to make one that involved rhubarb. So I dropped three pounds of cream cheese in a bowl (laughs) on my counter and went to work. (laughs) All right, let's talk about cheesecake. The most famous one, of course, is the New York Cheesecake. Which is dense, tends to not be very high, inch and a half, maybe two inches. Almost always has a crust. The other most common style of cheesecake, which is the one that I'm going to be making today, is uh, a little bit fluffier, a little softer, not quite as dense. Doesn't have quite as much of a like cheesy texture. I love New York cheesecakes, but I typically when I make them, I make the other style, which I don't. I don't think it really has a name. I'm just going to call it a custard style because it it's. Softer, it's it's more like a custard in its texture. I mean, all cheesecakes basically are custards. So today I'm going to be making a custard-style cheesecake in a water bath with no crust. I don't particularly love the crust on cheesecakes. I, they're all right to me on some of the New York cheesecakes where they're kind of dry. But particularly when you're baking in a water bath, the crusts have a tendency to be kind of soggy. But a cheesecake needs something crunchy to go along with it. This is gonna be a really basic cheesecake that I'm gonna serve with a rhubarb curd and a pretzel streusel. And this is designed in my mind to call back to an iconic American dessert. It's called, in the great Southern tradition of calling things salad that are not remotely salad, it's called pretzel salad. And uh, in its original form, it's strawberry jello with a cream cheese filling and a pretzel crust. And it's awesome. Most important thing in cheesecake, by far the most important thing. If you do nothing else to ensure the success of your cheesecake, you need to do this. Make sure your cream cheese is at room temperature. If it's not soft, no matter how much you beat it, there's going to be lumps and lumps in cheesecake are bad. It'll still taste good, but I mean, come on, we all know cheesecake with lumps, no good. Soften your cream cheese beforehand. Just let it sit out on the counter for a while. Put it in your mixer with the paddle and go to town. and it takes a little while. This is, there are certain things that are just almost impossible to do without an electric motor, and beating cream cheese is one of those. This is definitely an operation that you gotta stop repeatedly to scrape down the sides of your bowl. It is important to do this before you add any of the other ingredients. Your eggs won't incorporate properly. Your sugar won't incorporate properly. So now I can see that it's starting to release from the paddle. It's beginning to get nice and loose. Once you get it to the ideal consistency, it's almost like a real thick frosting. You want to be sure that it's time lumpy cheesecake man nobody wants that i'm going to call that good it's looking like it's fairly nice and soft so the next thing i'm going to do is add my eggs and always remember when you're adding your liquid especially when you're adding it to something as stiff as cream cheese, take this part very slowly. What I'm going to do is I've cracked all my eggs into a bowl, and this is a good time to talk about the ratio of this particular cheesecake, uh, which is a a good ratio for a custard cheesecake, but may not hold up for a New York-style or a souffle-style cheesecake. I am using one whole egg per block of cream cheese, so those come in half-pound blocks, and for every two whole eggs that I use, I am also adding an egg yolk. So this is three pounds of cream cheese, aka six blocks of cream cheese. So this is getting six whole eggs and three egg yolks. And coming down the line, I'll just give you the whole recipe right now. Three pounds of cream cheese, six whole eggs, three egg yolks, a pound of sugar, 136 grams of heavy cream, 30 grams of cornstarch, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, 15 grams of salt a little vanilla and the zest of two lemons and the juice of one. That is the entire recipe. I have six whole eggs and three egg yolks in here and I'm going to basically, I'm gonna put the mixer on very low, put the mixer on really low and I'm going to add one egg at a time. If I added all my eggs at once, then they would splash everywhere. As it starts to loosen up too, you can add them a little faster but you can hear the sound of the mixer changing because the mixture is now considerably looser. Now it's incorporated, I'm gonna scrape down the sides of the bowl. You need to spend a little time making sure that you incorporate all the cream cheese into the cream cheese and egg mixture because any that stays, that stays solidified will be lumpy. And once it really starts to incorporate, that's when you can crank it pretty high My mixer's a little too small to be doing that high. Don't rush beating the cheesecake, really don't rush the whole process. You know, cheesecake is something that it really, it should take a little bit to beat, to get all the lumps, to get it perfectly smooth, and then it'll take a little while to bake because you don't wanna, particularly the custard style, you don't bake it hot and fast. And then after you finish it, The cheesecake not only has to set up but for maximum flavor it really should sit for at minimum a day and two days is better two days i find is is perfectly awesome although i've eaten them at one too so and they're pretty good but it's definitely now it's gone from a frosting consistency to a pudding consistency It is considerably looser. And now I'm going to add my sugar. Pound of sugar, 136 grams of heavy cream, 30 grams of cornstarch, 15 grams of salt. The cornstarch, the purpose of the cornstarch in this recipe, uh, a lot of cheesecake recipes call for it. A lot of them call for flour. What it does is it, it just helps to stabilize the cheesecake and firm up the texture a little bit. You know, that is one of the big differences between a lot of different cheesecake recipes that might otherwise look the same is different amounts of cornstarch or using flour. And this doesn't get beat nearly as long. I've got this beautiful yellowish, pale yellow custard now. And now it's time to add the flavorings. My personal dessert philosophy these days is moving towards pretty simple and neutral bases. And then I'll add more intense flavoring as part of a separate sauce or a separate, you know, crumble or whatever. You know, there's a million different ways you can do it. Um, That's just kind of how I'm doing things these days. And there's various reasons, but it's all personal preference, really. So a little shot of vanilla, a little more. I like vanilla. We take vanilla for granted. Oh, it's just plain vanilla. But really, it's one of the most complex flavors that we use. There's a reason it's the second most expensive spice in the world. Next thing is lemon zest. I'm zesting two lemons and the juice of one. So, springform pans. This is an 11-inch pan. And that, that is aluminum foil. Because in order to bake in a water bath with a springform pan, you need to line the bottom of the pan on the outside with typically aluminum foil. And the reason that you have to do that is because if you don't, then it is very possible that water will leak into your pan. So I have uh, buttered my springform pan and now I have lined the outside of it with some aluminum foil. I'm gonna pour some boiling water into my pan. So all I gotta do is pour it in there now. I've got my oven preheated to 325 and it's gonna sit in there for at least, it usually takes at least an hour and 15 minutes. I want it to jiggle in the middle and be, and be just barely set on the outside. And then I will turn the oven off and prop the door open with a wooden spoon and let it sit in the cooling oven for like two hours and that will finally set the cheesecake. Leave it in the oven to cool down with the oven and you won't have near as many problems with cracking. And if your cheesecake cracks, just cover it with sour cream. Pretty much. Nobody will ever know. Or fruit. Or fruit. Sour cream's easier, though. And we've already established that I'm lazy.
1: Got it. You'd have to cut the strawberries, right? I
0: know. I right. you know. I mean, come on. Who's going to do that? I know. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about because this becomes a big problem for me right around June, July, because I have five rhubarb plants and three of them are very large. Preserving this bounty that nature huh. bestows upon us, and most people, honestly, they just wind up throwing it in the freezer, which is kind of fine, but but it, it limits you because then in the, you can only make like pie with it. That's right. It. I want to talk a little bit about preserving rhubarb. And I want to talk... The first thing I want to talk about is the last thing that I wrote down on my little list. Okay. Are you familiar with shrubs? I am. Rhubarb shrubs are super good. Oh, yeah. Do you make them? I do. Okay. So a shrub... (laughs) It's so everybody, vinegar. everybody wants me to wants me to tell you guys what a shrub is in case you don't know. But I mean, who doesn't know what a shrub is? Oh. A shrub, of course, is a it's a drinking vinegar. Yeah, is the simplest way of putting it. And it was a real it was a a classic for a long time, like in the 19th century. And basically, the way that I think of it is that it's a soda base, right? Like it's basically a soda syrup. You know, like if you think of it, Coca Cola or you know any of the mm-hmm. any of the sodas. We think of them as being super sweet, and they are insanely sweet, yes, but the reason they can get so sweet is because they have a huge acidic component. Like, citric acid is one of the biggest, uh, one of the second biggest ingredients in all of those syrups, which is why they can be so sugary without being, well, I mean, some of them are cloying and gross and, like, overly sweet. (laughs) But that's why they can take so much sugar, and so, what a shrub is is basically like the old version of a soda syrup. So what you do is, if you're making a fruit one, you can make them with anything. You can make them with herbs. You can make them with spices. You can pretty much anything. Is you macerate the fruit with a little bit of sugar. It doesn't have to be a ton. And then uh, and then you add vinegar to that.
1: Do you have There's, a preference on your vinegar? You know, like apple cider or white or. What
0: I've been the last couple of years because I have this big carboy full of what's now like. Five, six-year-old um, red wine vinegar from when we used to we used to run a restaurant, and all the oh, all the, the the empty or the the half uh, full glasses. You know, if, if a buy the glass bottle of wine didn't sell, we dumped the. The remainder into this uh, vinegar after, or into this carboy that, that full of vinegar. That never
1: happens at my house. Well, it,
0: it, <laughs> it didn't happen all the time, but when we had leftover, it turns out you know it, it sounds it, really good. When you've got when you've got you know eight or nine different by yeah. the glass options, you yeah. wind up you wind up with some leftover wine, and so we were poured into this carboy with uh, that we started with just a little a little mother you know little sure. raw vinegar, and uh, and now like six years later, it's I mean it's really delicious. Oh,
1: I need to taste that.
0: I should bring you in. We could I trade bring, something. I should bring What do you got?
1: Um, rhubarb.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I got 5 plants, Terry. I, I don't know, need any I more know. rhubarb. I think we
1: should make wine.
0: <laughs> well, we're going to talk about that actually. Excellent. A little bit, yeah, um, later on. But so anyway, what you do is you you steep the the rhubarb in some of the vinegar. Well, there's a couple different ways of making it. You can do it you can do it hot with like a hot sugar syrup mm-hmm. and hot uh, hot rhubarb, but I and that's faster, but I prefer the cold method because i think you get more of like the aromatics as opposed to that kind of like cooked flavor yep. you know which yep. is fine you know if you like that kind of thing but i i think it i think it's better with where you just let it steep in the vinegar and a little bit of sugar and then at the end you strain it out and then you add more sugar to taste you know to get it to a point that you want that you that you like it but it's important to remember with a shrub that you're not really you're not going to drink it on its own no you know what it's the base yeah it's just a it's a it's a base that then you add into like seltzer or soda water or cheap champagne or, <laughs> or yeah or then or gin and tonic yeah. or i mean Ooh, there's yeah. there's a ton of different things that you can do with it once it's gotten to the shrub phase a little bit of rhubarb shrub in a glass with ice and seltzer water in like you know in like august when it's getting real hot like 72 degrees and you can just barely stand up.
1: I think it was more like 68 in my house, but that's okay.
0: I mean, it's all brutal, you know?
1: <laughs> I know. No, it's so refreshing. And I know they used to drink them a lot down in the south. They did. Because it's, it's very hot down there, obviously.
0: Yeah. And something about the vinegar really helps. I don't mm-hmm. know if it Quenched, stimulates sweating, but yeah, I mean, you're just like, at the end of it, you're just like, wow. I'm Do you prefer-. put any,
1: like a pinch of salt in there at all
0: or anything? Uh, I think it would be advisable. Although, mm-hmm. you know, if you were using soda, soda water, as oh, opposed to like right. seltzer, you know? That already contains a little bit of sodium. Got it. But if you were using seltzer, it would certainly be appropriate. Yeah. Makes me want to go home and make one. I know. And then they
1: get that pretty pink color. Yeah. They're
0: beautiful. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. You can make them with pretty much any fruit. I've made them with pineapple before. Just like, (gasps) just, you know, just a pineapple from the store. You just cut it up and do the same thing with it. But you can make it with any, any fruit, really. Blueberries, Mm -hmm. raspberries. Raspberry shrubs good,
1: too. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I've made raspberries. Oh, I love raspberries and rhubarb because we have them.
0: Yeah, and they get, what grows together goes together. Yeah, yeah. Okay, do you make jam?
1: I love jam. Yeah.
0: Okay, what's your do? Do you have any any <laughs> tricks to your? Do you add lemon juice to your rhubarb jam? Um, or do you consider it tart enough?
1: There's a couple. Well, you know, because being an old Midwest girl, mom's favorite way to make rhubarb jam because you think you're lazy. Mom, mom is really lazy. She would use the Jell-O base. <laughs> <laughs> um and and it was great you'd stir 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 the rhubarb and then you'd add the jello and it's what flavor up, jello oh it's strawberry
0: strawberry or oh,
1: raspberry um and go in the freezer but i found a really new fun recipe where you get a green apple and you you um, peel it and then you grate it and then that goes in with your chopped up fruit and your sugar and then at the end, when it's done cooking, you put a little lemon in it. It's a, it's a refrigerator jam. Okay. But it's so, so fresh tasting and not really sweet like some jams can be. And it's my new favorite thing to make.
0: Nice. Do you pickle rhubarb at all?
1: I haven't, no.
0: I've tried it too, and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't that impressed with it. I, uh-huh. I tried to vinegar pickle it once, and it was okay, but it really yeah. didn't do much for me. I thought that if you're going to use a bunch of vinegar on... Rhubarb. You might as well make a shrub. Yeah. But I've never tried, I've never tried lacto fermenting it either. You no. know, Mm-mm. I don't know what that would be like. My, in my imagination, it tastes really weird, but you never know. Fermentation does such funny things to things. And honestly, like, like we were talking about earlier, rhubarb wine is, uh, it's the only wine that I've ever made out of a fruit
1: that you're, that, that you I really thought liked. was
0: any good. See, I mean, at all. Me
1: too. Well, and then I've had some amazing raspberry wine too.
0: Oh, have you? But I haven't made it. Yeah, and even, like, even, it was one of my first batches of wine too, and I didn't know what I was doing at all. And you it know? was good? Yeah, it was delicious. And, and at the same time, I tried to make so, uh, two or three other different kinds, and none of them were, they were just all sweet and they didn't taste like anything. You know, I think I tried to make a. I think I tried to make a blueberry one. I think I tried to make a. Wow. <laughs> oh, I remember one of them. The worst one was I tried to make a dandelion wine. Oh, dear. And it was awful. I mean, <laughs> it was just horrible. And it is one of the things you sort of hear about. You're like, <laughs> it, you know, oh, yeah, there's old timers. They all say it. dandelion wine is the best. Yeah. And I'm like, come on. I mean, these guys must have just not around, been Can't around like anything. you sitting
1: here shaking your head back and forth, like,
0: oh, heavens, no. It's like, you got to be pretty desperate to, to start making it. So, what.
1: What did you think made the rhubarb wine amazing?
0: Uh, well, I think it, I think it had a lot to do with how much with the the acidic nature of the rhubarb. You know, it it was it's such a and actually this is we later on in the show I talked to Patrick from the Grog Shop and he talks a little bit about okay. rhubarb wine too and why you know because it has this distinct like acidic character that's different from like citric acid, you know, or the acid in like blueberries and and things like that. It's a different kind of acid that seems to complement it. It almost like builds up other flavors instead of competing with them. Uh And that was kind of what I felt about, about the rhubarb wine that I made. And it was, it was like real pale pink. Oh, very, pretty. you know, just a little fizzy. It was good. Oh, I love it. I really enjoyed it. I might, yeah. I might try to make some more this year. No, you will. But I have a rhubarb component for my cheesecake that I have to make first. Okay. And I chose to showcase its tart flavor in a very English fashion as the egg-rich custard, known as curd. Okay, step two is making lemon curd. Well, not lemon curd, rhubarb curd. It's based on lemon curd. And lemon curd is a very classic uh, English condiment. It's very tart, but it's very rich at the same time because there's eggs and butter in it. I will give you the recipe for this rhubarb curd first. Well, I'll give you the recipe for lemon curd, and then I'll tell you how I'm adapting it. So this is four egg yolks, five ounces of sugar, two ounces of butter, three and a half ounces of lemon juice, a little salt, and a couple teaspoons of lemon zest. That is lemon curd. Um, That's the basic recipe from which all other curds are derived. So in this case, I'm making a rhubarb curd. So instead of lemon juice, I am using rhubarb juice. And the way that I'm getting that, this is a nice recipe for this time of year, especially because it doesn't take very many. All of my stalks right now are real short and I don't have a lot of actual stalks yet. I definitely don't have enough stalks to make like a pie or a crumble or anything like that. But I do have enough stalks. I was able to get enough from my plants to get three and a half ounces of rhubarb juice. And the way that I get the juice is first you dice it pretty fine, as fine as you can tolerate it, and then just sprinkle a little bit of sugar, just enough to kind of coat everything and let it sit for a while, let it macerate. After a while, the sugar will help the the juice, it'll draw out the juices inside the rhubarb and you will get a nice pool of delicious rhubarb liquid. After I drain the first bit off, then I'll put the the remainder in my mortar and pestle and you can kind of pound it out a little bit and throw a little more sugar in there and let it salt and let it sit for a little bit longer and you'll get the remaining part of the juice. and so that amount in total was enough to bring me up to three and a half to three and a half ounces, which is what I need for this recipe. I had I was a little bit shy so I filled it out with a little splash of red wine vinegar. Um, you could also use lemon juice. There's nothing wrong with adding some lemon zest to this recipe. It'd be quite delicious. In this case, I didn't want lemon because my cheesecake already has some lemon zest in it. So I added a little Quebec numero un dark maple syrup because I like maple syrup. Now, the color of the sauce ideally would be somewhat pink. In this case, because I don't have an enormous amount of stems and they're not very long, there's not a lot of the reddish outside. So it's a little bit of a pinkish green, which it's a little weird looking, but that's okay. I don't personally mind, but what I would do later in the summer when the stalks have grown up a little more, you're going to get proportionately a little more, a little more of the pink. But what you can also do if you really want to boost the color is to peel the stalks and macerate the peeled, um, the peeled pink part in with all the rest of it. And that will really amp up the color. All the other ingredients are the same. And I'm going to dump all of that in a saucepan, mix it all up, and this is a very, very simple thing to make. All that I'm going to do, quite literally, is to turn on my burner and heat this up in a pot to 196 degrees Fahrenheit, which ordinarily would be way past the point at which egg yolks would cook, but there is so much acid and so much sugar, these egg yolks will not cook until even past that and essentially the visual thing that you're looking for is you want it to coat the back of the spoon and if you draw the back of your fingernail across the back of the spoon it'll leave a trail behind and that trail will stay it won't fill in and the last thing I do want to make sure is that I have a bowl ready to receive my curd when it's done so I can get it out of the hot pan and uh, eliminate the risk of it overcooking and I also have a strainer to go with that because I am going to want to strain my curd. A lot of a lot of the really awesome stuff that comes out of pro- professional kitchens is uh being strained multiple times. Okay, so here we go. firing <laughs> off the stove. Okay, we're coming along here at 145. You just stir and stir and stir. You'll see as you approach, as you get into the one late 160s and into the 170s, it'll really start to thicken up quite a bit. And then once you, and this is going to, it's going to take a minute too to cook once it gets up there. It's not an instantaneous reaction. It, it needs to, it needs to set up in the pan just a little bit. So now I'm at 180, 184. It's definitely starting to thicken up, but it's still it's still decidedly liquidy. 187. At 194. Oh, we're getting there. So once I start getting there, then I'll generally go on and off the heat a little bit because I do need to give it it needs to kind of hold its temperature it doesn't set up immediately once it gets there. So I'll pull it off the heat and kind of stir it. And as you're stirring it and as it cools down a little, you can see it just beginning to get thicker. I just tested it and I got a nice, pretty thick trail, but it did fill in behind me just a little bit. So this is a little bit of the tricky part because you don't want it overheating and curdling, but it's got to sit for it's got to stay at this heat while the egg proteins unravel and link up. And again, this is the reason the reason that you have the the strainer ready to go is because you're probably gonna see some chunks, it's pretty hard to make a totally smooth lemon curd, or any kind of curd just right on the stovetop. Don't worry, it doesn't make you less of a cook because the strainer is the pastry cook's best friend. Oh, it's pretty thick. it's almost there, so I'm just gonna leave it just for probably just another 30 seconds to a minute. Oh yeah, now it's decidedly getting getting harder. There's a lot more resistance to stirring it. Now this thing it needs to set up overnight in the fridge. This is not a something that you make right before it's time for dessert. Okay, so that's good. I'm happy with that. It leaves a nice trail. Now I'm pouring it through the strainer, very gently. You could do this in a double boiler, in which case there would be considerably fewer uh, little lumpy curdles of egg, but it would also take like 20 minutes, which is why I'm not doing it in a double boiler. I'd rather have a teaspoon of lumpy curdled egg than stand over the stove stirring for 20 minutes when the results are... Exactly the same. Okay, that's done. The very same recipe with the addition of some cornstarch, about 25 grams uh, on the minimum end, maybe more if you want it to be firmer. The very same recipe can be used as the base for a lemon meringue pie or any meringue pie. So compared to the lemon curd, there's really not much to talk about with the streusel. That's really easy to make. One part butter, one part flour, one part pretzels and like three quarters of a part sugar. So this is like 100 grams of pretzels, 100 grams of butter, 100 grams of flour, 75 grams of sugar. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna blitz the uh, the flour and the sugar and the, the butter all together in the food processor. And then I will add my pretzels to that. The only real trick with strusel is that it's kind of like a pie dough. You don't want to melt the butter. You don't want the butter to get too warm. So start with cold butter. Don't overwork it. And now I'm going to drop my pretzels in there. And I I'm totally okay with some nice big chunks of pretzels. I don't want them to be I don't want it to be like a a powder of them. I want nice random chunks of pretzels. So that's what I'm going to get. Perfect. Totally happy with that. And I am just going to kind of crumble this stuff all together by hand a little bit. I'm going to dump that out on a tray and bake it at 325, just until it's all crispy and brown. So we actually have the results of that whole cheesecake... uh, Episode. ...business. (laughs) sitting here in front of us with the studio and terry and i are having a major disagreement because frankly i was pretty disappointed in my (sighs) rhubarb curd terry seems to like it although she might be humoring me
1: no i'm not it's good i think it's excellent
0: see here's what i thought when i made it because i wanted it to be like super bright and super tart and i felt like it had muddy flavors and i'll tell you i'll tell you i'll theorize as to why i think this what I did is instead of just macerating, macerating the, the sugar and the rhubarb and using just that juice, almost like the first pressing of an olive oil. Mm-hmm. Then what I did is I smushed all the rest of it up in a mortar and pestle and I got out like extra juice and there was already in there. And I feel like if I had left well enough alone... Oh that I wouldn't have, I feel like that second, because when I tasted it at first, I was like, oh, this is really, really good, uh, just the juice. I was like, oh, this is uh-huh. delicious, you know, it's nice and bright, it's very light. And then when I added the, the, the second pressing, A, the color was all of a sudden a lot muddier and darker, and the flavor itself was like, all of a sudden, I, I had brought out more of like kind of the vegetal qualities mm-hmm. of the rhubarb, which, I mean, it is definitely a characteristic of the, of the flavor, but I think it, it threw it all out of balance and out of whack.
1: You know, I do that way too much with my cooking. I try to, like, it's good. How can I make it better? And then it, it backfires on you.
0: Yeah, well, and, and part happens. of it, part of it too, was that I was a little bit shy on the juice, you know, oh, okay. of, that, of that first pressing because mm-hmm. I didn't have much rhubarb because, I mean, the stalks were yeah. only, like, uh. you know, five or six inches high. So I didn't really have that much, and I tried to eke it out, whereas what I should have done was add some more vinegar to it or a little lemon juice or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. But then the second thing that I did wrong... Is I was like, oh, maple syrup. I love maple syrup, and it'll go super well with this, uh, with this rhubarb curd. And I think that both the maple syrup inherently and the fact that it was dark maple syrup also contributed to like that muddy sort of uh, flavor. My original usually when I've done this before, I use lemon zest, and it makes it like a little brighter and a little lemonier. Yeah. But I was like, oh, I've got lemon zest in the cheesecake. I don't want to. I don't want to add more lemon zest here, and I should have. No, now you know. Well, yeah, and that's what, it's its okay to fail, you, you know? You
1: didn't fail, it well. just wasn't what you thought. <laughs> I think it's excellent, I didn't have anything to compare it to.
0: Well, and that's part of it, too, you, you know? know, is like you, you build up this sort of idea in your head, oh, it's going to taste like this, it's going to be, you know, th- and you can sort of envision it, and then very often, especially when you're kind of winging it, yeah it's different you know and then you have to sit there and figure out why but nobody else no, ever notices no well, i mean if i hadn't told you like oh i'm really disappointed in this what would you have said
1: i i, I think it's amazing it's wonderful I, I, it's it's to me it's fruity it it's the color is absolutely beautiful it um complements the cheesecake everything you have going on here is so wonderful the crunchy press pretzel crust well the pretzels schoozle. are awesome and, and they're salty, and they go well with the sweet and the creaminess of the cheesecake, and you can just taste the fresh eggs in there. And yeah, the,
0: well, the, pret, the pretzel, the strudel and the cheesecake, those are both awesome. I, but I the, love pretzels. The, the, know, curd, right. the curd's all wrong.
1: Well, I think the curd was lovely, and just...
0: <laughs> We're just going to have to agree to disagree here. We, we this, are, this dish is terrible, you, Terry. You
1: know, you know <laughs> you're your own worst critic. You know that, right? I know. I think it's fab.
0: Well, thanks. You're welcome. Rhubarb is not a common flavor in drinks, although the grog shop's Patrick Driscoll thinks it should be. We found a sunny outside deck to talk about rhubarb bitters, homemade rhubarb wine, and why rhubarb is the inexpensive bottles' best friend. Okay, so let's talk about the uh, the bottle that you brought in first. <laughs> so tell us tell us about these rhubarb bitters.
3: So they're made by Fee Brothers, a company out of New York that is just one of the best bitters producers out there but and it is a really awesome accompaniment to lots of cocktails and also really works well in non-alcoholic beverages it's incredibly flavorful on its own but rhubarb does this really unique thing when, when you're mixing it with, with liquors in that m- I feel like most flavors pair really well with a brown spirit or they pair, pair well with a, a, a clear spirit rhubarb does both in a dark spirit a, a tequila uh, bourbons, even Scotches, believe it or not, it it takes away some of the harshness and it really brings out those roasted, toasty kind of vanilla and wood notes. I don't know, it makes me think of sitting by a fire kind of, and it does. It kind of does the opposite when you mix it with something like gin. It really makes the aromatics pop, and I, I can't think of another flavor that really blends that well with both. Rhubarb old fashions are great. We did one at WD fifty that was muddled, macerated rhubarb, I, I don't remember the whiskey we used, but it was something quite good, a little bit of Dolan sweet vermouth, and then rhubarb bitters, and it was delicious. Wow.
0: So is the, is the flavor of the rhubarb bitters, is it, is it like the tartness of the rhubarb, or is it like the, the it, it, vegetal flavor? Or it leans more
3: towards the tartness, okay. for sure. But, but the, that vegetal flavor is still there, too. Uh-huh. But no, the tartness is the note that stands out, I think, okay. more than anything. I think a lot of people don't realize that rhubarb was actually a pretty classic pre-prohibition cocktail flavor. I think in large part due to the fact that it grows just about everywhere in the country. Right. <laughs> and it's incredibly easy to grow, so it's yeah. something that people had around. And so you see it in, in lots of really kind of odd places that when you, you know when you go back to these cocktail books from the 1840s, 50s, 60s, it pops up all over the place, and I think it's kind of missing now, and hasn't gotten the revival that a lot of other aspects of those drinks have. I mean, really, there's enough people around here who homebrew. You don't need anything more than a standard homebrew set uh, to make rhubarb wine. It grows in abundance, and it's about a month start to finish, and you get a really good product. Yeah, it's
0: it's hard enough. Like you know, my problem with most of the fruit wines that I've made, they're always like just sweet you know right. it's like cloying and one dimensional but rhubarb when you, when you make the wine out of it it always it, it actually tastes like there's a little bit of complexity there you
3: know no there really is and I think it's actually if I'm not mistaken I was looking this up the other night uh, the most popular homemade wine in the country I mean outside of you know, the people that go and buy the wine kits of grape juice So whatever that, right. but that's not really wine making, that's not making anything, right? But no, to make something from start to finish, I think rhubarb is the biggest thing across the country.
0: So let's segue then in, into uh, grape wines that you know you might pair with well let's talk about first let's talk about the savory side first like to we do like a set like a rhubarb relish or something that you're going to serve with like a piece of halibut or you know whitefish to me is like the first thing that jumps to mind when i think of rhubarb and yeah
3: actually and i like stuff. rhubarb chutney on like chicken as well yeah uh, exactly um i think in those white meats you're still leaning towards white wine just like you would be with the underlying proteins anyway. What's really unique about rhubarb, and and this isn't true for all high acidic foods, but there's something about the acid nature of rhubarb that it tends to fight against other acids, especially those malic and citric and- Yeah, that's what I
0: was wondering. Is the acidity a problem in-
3: Well, what it ends up doing is actually, if you use a wine that's lower in acid, it lends its acidity to the wine in a really kind of remarkable way, and it really works. And so you can take those softer, Wines that you might almost consider bland on their own, soft, easy drinking Oregon Pinot Gris or Washington State Rieslings that that maybe aren't the, the real high acid versions of Riesling. You pair those with the rhubarb and they all of a sudden get a backbone they didn't have to start with. But if you do the opposite and use something like a really high acid dry Riesling from Germany or Austria, Th- those two acids conflict. The wine loses all of its fruit, and it, the, the whole thing just turns shrill. It, but it's odd because like citrus fruit doesn't work that way. Um, you know, when you're going up against citrus, you want some acid to balance it out, and it just doesn't work that way with rhubarb.
0: Well, all right. Well, let's move to uh, to the buzzerier end and the, the sweeter the sweeter rhubarb dishes. So like a, a rhubarb pie or a rhubarb crumble are the first two obvious.
3: You know, and here again, I think you you can go the obvious route and go really, really sweet, but maybe sweet without a lot of acid. It, it's kind of odd to say, but you're actually looking at maybe wanting to go with a lower end dessert wine that doesn't have the backbone of some of those, you know, higher price point and, and generally considered higher quality dessert wines. But those kind of soft, sweet things work really well. But what I actually find a lot more interesting to do is that dry wines actually work really well to pair with desserts here. Particularly, I think, dry rosé. And again, that softer kind of side. So rosés from California, from Spain, where you've got more fruit-driven and and soft and fuller. Those actually work really, really well. The other way that I like to go, again, as opposed to going the the super sweet to try and beat the acid with the sweetness, is to go with something like muscata d'asti. Pretty much everything. <laughs> I, and, you know, just to bring it back to the savory side, if you were doing, like, you know, lamb with a savory chutney that had rhubarb, which is something that I really like, actually, red wine actually works really well there. But, again, you're going on that softer, rounder side. So real fruit-driven Pinot Noirs like Russian River or um, down in Santa Barbara, Barberas or Beaujolais. Again, they just... It, it's funny that... You almost always want a lot of acid in food pairings, and in this case, it's the one where you just don't.
0: <laughs> I would've never, are there other so are there other sort of high acid foods like that that behave
3: similarly? Actually, the one that comes to mind is strawberries, which makes sense in that rhubarb and strawberries are so often associated and, right. and joined in, in, in desserts, or rhubarb juice itself is a really great cocktail ingredient. I, I know writing cocktail lists, it was one that we had to constantly go we can't use it again <laughs> um, because it was such a well that'll make it better right um, but so uh, with, with with gin and rhubarb it's a great addition to a gin and tonic it also think about kind of some of the older classics like an aviation um, you can substitute in either uh, rhubarb juice or uh, a little bit of uh, rhubarb bitters or, or a shrub uh, in place of the creme de violette and it's actually absolutely delicious. Yeah. Oh, you know, the other, where rhubarb actually also works really well, um, I've had examples from Alsace and from Austria of um, true schnapps or eau de vie uh, that were made uh, with rhubarb base. And those were unbelievable. And you have these crystal clear spirits that have been distilled multiple times and the flavor hangs on just absolutely pure. Wow. And that isn't the case for a lot of fruits.
0: That sounds better than the 8 million kinds of vodka that are getting distilled.
3: I agree 100%. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: that's a tip for all the, all the new distillers out there. Find a Find a rhubarb patch. Okay, we just got a few minutes left, so we have to hit on savory uses for rhubarb and patrick mentioned rhubarb chutney Mm -hmm. and you also mentioned rhubarb chutney and various rhubarb relishes so what do you like to use those with
1: oh i like to put them on um pork and fish and lamb
0: yeah rhubarb on halibut is like is pretty amazing
1: oh it's it's wonderful. And you know, I remember when I first found this rhubarb chutney recipe and um it was a really long time ago my girlfriend and I made some and we thought it was like one of the best things we've ever tasted. And we have all this rhubarb and we're young and poor and we're like we could just sell this at the market and get totally rich. And <laughs> but it's really good and stuff. And now
0: today you've you've created a rhubarb chutney empire, right?
1: Well, yeah. I guess ever heard of mom's Teresa rhubarb
0: chutney. Oh,
1: I <laughs> so should you, have. You,
0: so how do you so how do you make your rhubarb chutney? Run run me through the process.
1: Well, you know, you just um, you you combine um, some balsamic some balsamic vinegar, a little coriander, a little cinnamon stick, and then um, some coarsely chopped rhubarb, and you cook that over medium heat a little bit, and then you add in a little. Um, fresh cranberries or dried cranberries depending on what you're doing with it because dried cranberries can be kind of sweet um and a little salt a little red pepper maybe um and you cook that and wait till the rhubarb's tender and you chill it till all those flavors marry up and that's it i usually i like it on grilled fish and grilled things it's good with um pork that's had a marinade and any kind of a mustard
0: It's c- just yummy. I can see that as being pretty or delicious. Or you could
1: even, you know how everybody likes to do the brie thing at the holidays where they put the brie out with the jam on it or whatnot. It's really good on that
0: too. Oh, rhubarb and brie. Uh-huh. That makes sense. Because it's you know. got a
1: little sweet in it. Yeah. And a little savory. And so, yeah, I love it. What do you like?
0: I like it. I like to just chop it up raw uh-huh. and salt it a little and uh, some onions. Like a quick pickle kind of thing, maybe? Yeah, like a salsa almost, except with rhubarb, you know?
1: Oh, I've done that too, yeah.
0: Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Added
1: it to all kinds of salsas.
0: Well, yeah, but you can just, you can just if you if you just chop it up real fine like that and just make kind of a little relish mm-hmm. almost, and then you can dump it right on some fish.
1: Yeah, and, and it looks it, good. And
0: it, Yeah, it's pretty, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's what, really, food's not really about mm-hmm. flavor. It's about...
1: Textures. It's
0: about looking pretty.
1: Yeah. I think
0: we all know that.
1: Yeah, it is. It, it I I like the crunch on, that it gives things. So when you do something like that with. I it.
0: actually I should mention this because I was just looking at this the other day. There's a we we did not unfortunately have this dish because it wasn't we went in uh, in winter and not in spring when they have it. This place called Tokay that de, does it's a really famous dish. It's in their cookbook and it's uh, rhubarb cannoli. <laughs> and the way they do it is they peel the rhubarb and they salt or uh, sugar the sugar the rhubarb a little bit. And they weave the peeled rhubarb skins into a lattice, right? Into like like a mat, basically. And they put that in the oven and they dry it out in a low... Well, I'm sure they use a, a dehydrator in the restaurant. So if you have a dehydrator, which a lot of people around here do, you can do it in that. Um, and you don't have to, you know, make the mat and everything. You can just dehydrate the rhubarb skins. And what, what it winds up looking like, so then they, they partially dehydrate it. They don't go all the way because then they, they fry their cannoli shell and they roll the rhubarb uh, mat on the outside of the, of the cannoli shell. So the outside of the cannoli shell is like this beautiful, and it comes out just amazing looking. It's like glossy pink with little green streaks. Um, kind of in the middle, oh. you know, because and different and a bunch of different shades, because obviously every every uh, rhubarb is different. And then they serve it with, I think it's a like a thyme pastry cream is the stuffing on the inside of the cannoli. It's one of their most famous desserts, and it's pretty insane looking. It sounds beautiful. So you can you can very easily throw your rhubarb in the dehydrator.
1: <laughs> I think I'm going to go for the wine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Or you can puree it up and make fruit roll-ups, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, and you can make rhubarb soup, too, like a chilled rhubarb soup. Oh, yeah.
0: Really? Oh, sure. Is that like a German thing? That sounds German.
1: Mm, it's not a savory thing. It's another sweet thing, like a yeah. strawberry well, soup. Well, it'd be like a dessert soup, yeah. yeah like cream I know like Hungarians make and...
0: like cherry soup. Oh, yeah. I never had it, but...
1: I love cherries, too. I yeah. love fruit.
0: I know. We can't get cherries, though.
1: No. Not it, unless we pay an Armaleg for them.
0: <laughs> or fly to Michigan in the... <laughs> there you go. ...in the summer. Oh, no. <laughs> Well,
1: I could talk about rhubarb for a long time.
0: Yeah, but we have to stop. I'm sorry. We're only allowed to talk about things for an hour at a time. Okay. After hour six, I'm sure people would get tired of listening to us.
1: <laughs> Maybe we'd have to switch over to something else like potatoes. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
0: no, potatoes are a fall dish, Terry. Oh, yeah. Okay. We don't talk about potatoes in the spring. Well,
1: I still have them in my cold room.
0: Unfortunately, it's time to go. Okay. My guest for today's Check the Pantry has been Terry Roble who is a blast. As always, thanks (laughs) for stopping in.
1: It's always so much fun. I love it. You know that.
0: My name is Jeff Lockwood. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood and was engineered today by Kathleen Gustafson. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Eben. This is the fifth episode of the spring 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI Public Radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this. (laughs)
2: Da <laughs> da